there's a, um, there's a beautiful joke that is told. And it's a story of a bus driver and a rabbi who die roughly at the same time. And what happens is, is that the rabbi and the bus driver both arrive in heaven. And the bus driver, we are told, is immediately brought into heaven. And the rabbi is left outside. So the rabbi begins to complain. He says, I don't understand. He says, I've devoted my entire life to my religion. I've studied all the sacred texts every day of my life. I have been punctilious in being careful about praying in the appropriate ways and times, eating only strictly kosher food, in leading my flock in the purest and best of ways. So I don't understand why is it that this simple bus driver has gotten right into heaven and I'm waiting outside. And then God turns to the rabbi and says to him, Rabbi, to tell you the truth, what you're saying is all right. He says, but when you taught and you spoke and you did all the things that you did, everyone fell asleep. But when he drove, everyone prayed. And this, of course, this, this joke, which is such an old joke, but it has such a great truth to it, is that it points out to us a great warning, particularly for people like me. And that is, perhaps, great changes aren't made. And maybe, perhaps, people aren't drawn closer to what is the most important things that we learn about life. Maybe these things don't happen because rabbis talk or priests talk or imams talk. Maybe it is more true because it is what Soren Kierkegaard, the great philosopher, once said about 150 years ago. Kierkegaard said that life is not some kind of problem for us to fix. In other words, life isn't some problem that we have to reason ourselves with thought through. Life, Kierkegaard said, is an experience that we have to live. Now, we've been almost a month now in this problem, and I guess, the, I guess that we have been living this long enough to know how people are actually living with it. In other words, not as some kind of problem to be solved necessarily, but how are people actually living this problem? And I think what I can speak to best is as a rabbi, what are the two ways I see people living with this as Jews? Not just as human beings, but as Jews. So there are two approaches. The first approach I want to say to you, if I was going to give a name to it, I would say the first approach you could call God's hands. This approach says that everything that happens in your life, and your life, and your life, and Mia, and your life, and all of your lives too, is all in God's hands. And what does that mean? What that means is, is that the good things that happen to you and the bad things that happen to you are all a direct result of the things that God has designed for you. This design is in part heavily influenced, if not completely influenced, by the things that you do in your life. Meaning that good things will happen to good people and bad things will happen to bad people. Everything is in God's hands. And we in some level can control what God does to us by doing the things that we believe God wants us to do. Now, as a point of confession, although those Jews don't believe in confession, but as a point of confession, I have to tell you that when I was a young child and when I was growing up, that's what I believed. 
I believed that everything that happened in my life was because whether or not I did something good or I did something bad. And the net result of that was is that as a young man, as a child too, I was always in terror. I was afraid that if I didn't study well enough my religious texts, if I didn't pray with enough concentration, that bad things might happen to me as a punishment because I wasn't good enough. But the inverse of this is also true. The inverse is, is that if I, the presumption is, is that if I do enough of the good things, if I observe all the laws carefully and with great exactitude, then what should happen to me? Good things are supposed to happen to me, right? That would be the inverse, is it? And so over the course of this pandemic that has unfolded, we've seen lots of interesting things in this school of thought. The argument is, is that synagogues and churches and mosques shouldn't be closed. And we shouldn't deny people to come to these places. Because if doing the right thing will make good things happen to us, then how can we stop people from praying and celebrating their religion? And in the Jewish context, we've seen this in a big way. Now, last month I was in Israel for about three weeks of the pandemic until I had to come back home. And it coincided roughly with the beginning of Purim all the way through. And most Israeli, Israeli authorities believe that the outbreak of the pandemic began with all the Purim celebrations. Not only that, but after the, after the Israeli government, as a result of guidelines from the Ministry of Health in Israel, they started shutting everything down. It was an incredible sight. Day by day by day, my wife Lisa and I would start seeing more and more things closed down in Israel. The shopping malls, the beaches, the gyms, public transport got halved, you name it. The airport started closing down, flights weren't allowed to come in. And yet, in the religious centers in Israel, Mea Sha'arim, B'nai Brak, Beit Shemesh, they didn't close the yeshivot down, the Jewish schools. They refused. And as of last week, actually two weeks ago, what have we discovered? Is that Israel has perhaps amongst the very lowest in mortality rates with the coronavirus. They've had something like 13,000 diagnoses and about 140 deaths. Now, if one of those 140 are people you love, it's too much. But on the scale of what we've seen throughout the world, particularly in Italy and Spain and New York, it's been a tiny number. And yet, the epicenters in Israel of infection are the religious communities. B'nai Brak was closed. They brought the army in and closed it. The army also went down and they went through all of the apartment buildings knocking on doors delivering food to people because they weren't allowed to leave their homes. And when they opened the doors up, they found families in there that were starving and they were crying at the presence of people bringing them food. 
at Emea Sha'arim and in Beit Shemesh, it was the same thing over and over again. That these people had ignored these health guidelines and they were suffering severe consequences as a result. So this first school of thought says that we can control God. And how do we control God? By doing the things that we think that God wants us to do. Now here's the other approach. This second approach is a bit of my approach. I, uh, I have to tell you that I'm very proud that I grew out of the first approach. I couldn't imagine living that way anymore. And I think we understand that life is always a process where we grow and develop over time. The things that you believed 20 years ago should not be the things that you believe now. And in religious thought, it should be the same things in some way too. We develop and grow. So what is it that I think is the second option? The second option, by the way, is no less ancient and it is no less true. If the first option says that we completely control and manipulate what God does to us as a result of the things that we do in our life, the second option says something else entirely different. The second option says that we don't observe religion, that we don't become committed Jews because we want God to do good by us. The second option doesn't say that we observe God laws and we observe Jewish traditions because we want to manipulate God to be kind to us and to be generous to us. That I don't give charity because I want God to be charitable to me. And that I'm not kind to people who are suffering misfortune because I want God to be kind to me. And Eddie, as you pointed out, I don't need kosher because I want God to be kind and good to me, that I should be rewarded for the things that I'm doing. I keep kosher, and I give charity, and I am kind, hopefully. (laughs) And I observe Jewish traditions for a different reason. This different reason says something the opposite of what the first option was. And it begins actually with this interesting explanation. The rabbis in the Talmud say that no matter how much you pray during a drought, that eventually it rains. And so they asked the question, does the rain fall because we prayed? They said, probably not, because eventually the rain always falls out of the sky. This idea is amplified in Jewish tradition by Moses Maimonides, by the great Jewish philosopher Baruch Spinoza. They say that the reason why we observe religion is not to change God, but to change us. For us to be able to see the beauty of the world, that when the sun rises, we appreciate that this is not a, it's a miracle in the sense that it happens, not because God every day wills it to happen, but this is part of the fabric of the, of the universe that God has created. In this idea, what religion does is not change God, but it forces me to change. Religion opens my mind up to the beauty of things that can happen in this world if humans are committed to making it happen. In other words, when people are starving to death, we don't pray to God to feed them. We feed them. And when people are sick, 
We don't pray to God to make them better. We first and foremost tell people to go to doctors, and then we pray for them. And when we pray for people who are ill, we pray that the doctors should be wise and strengthened to treat them wisely, that they should heal. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that even in the Middle Ages, that in the Christian empires throughout Europe, the doctors they had, the Christian emperors and kings and queens, were always Jews. Now, they didn't have the kind of medicine that we have today. But on the other hand, they understood that when they invited Christian doctors to come and treat them, what did the Christian doctors do? They prayed over them. The Jewish doctors didn't revert to praying. They tried physical things to make them better. And so this long-standing idea of intervening and trying to make life better is a long-standing Jewish idea. It is the idea that I think we, we, we see unfolding before us now. The way that we answer what is happening out there is to be kind and to be good and to be charitable to appreciate the efforts of people who are putting their lives on the line so that we can live and be healthy. Yes, it is the doctors and the nurses and the people who work in hospitals. It's also the people who deliver food to my home. It's the clerks and the cashier registers who work in the supermarkets. It's the cab drivers and the Uber drivers and the people in public transport who are taking people around. Who would have ever thought in our lifetime that we would look at people standing behind a cash register at a supermarket and we would say, wow, thank you. But that's what our world has become now. And that's a good thing in some ways for us to appreciate the work that all people do to support our life. In the Torah portion this morning, the name of it, of this Torah portion, Eddie, that will be forever linked with your life is called Shmini. The word Shmini means eighth. And the ancient rabbis tell us that the most important number in all of Jewish tradition, some would say one because it represents one God. Some might say seven because it represents the seven days of creation. Some might say 18 because it represents high life. But the ancient rabbis said that in fact the most important number in all of Judaism is the number eight. And why is it the number eight, Eddie? Well, think about it. First of all, a brit milah, a circumcision, is always on the eighth day. I suspect your favorite Jewish holiday, Hanukkah, how many days long is it? Eight days long. Your Torah portion is Shmini, eight. And the ancient rabbis say the reason why the number eight is the most important number is because God created the world in seven days, and the number eight is where we begin is where humans begin. On your bar mitzvah, we celebrate that this is your great beginning. And in this moment in our life, we realize that all of us live in the moment of number eight, that God is waiting for us to fix the problems in the world. The good news is we can do it. Shabbat shalom and mazel tov, everybody. It's beautiful to be here with you.